Thanks for listening to the Best of Coast to Coast podcast. Become a Coast Insider, and you can hear this complete conversation as well as recent shows featuring guests discussing new cases of the troubling cattle mutilation phenomenon, worrisome instances of clandestine CIA torture, and the evidence that the lost city of Atlantis may have really once existed. Check out these programs and many other fascinating episodes waiting for you in the Coast to Coast Archive by heading over to coasttocoastam.com and signing up for Coast Insider. Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Now, he was last with me almost four years ago when we talked with him about his best-selling book, 10% Happier. Now Dan Harris has another book called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics that he wrote with Jeff Warren and Carly Adler. Dan, of course, is the co-anchor of ABC's Nightline and the weekend editions of Good Morning America. He is the author, as I mentioned, of 10% Happier. That was a New York Times bestseller. And then he launched 10% Happier podcast and an app called 10% Happier Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. Dan, welcome back. Good to talk with you. Thanks for having me again. Great to be up late with you. And you were in the New York studios where people are going to say, my gosh, he must be in the studio with George right next to him. You sound great. (laughs) I I wish I was. I'm on the wrong coast. So tell us a little bit about this story that got you to write this book, Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. And I'm going to play a little clip a little later with you, which you'll, of course, remember. But I think it's important to the story. What happened to you? So uh, the the very beginning of the story is that I had a panic attack on national television on a little show we do here at ABC News called Good Morning America. <laughs> this was back in 2004. Um, I like to point out that uh, because I'm a huge masochist, I actually asked our research department to find out exactly how many people were watching, and they, they came back with the really reassuring number of 5.019 million. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, uh, I mean, we'll, you'll play the clip of it at some point. It yeah, was, we'll was, play it pretty soon. It was really uh, uh, an uncomfortable moment, and uh, it um, set me off on a long, windy road that ultimately led me to embracing something that I always thought was ridiculous, which is meditation. Okay. Uh, let's a, yeah, go ahead. Let's, Sorry, go let's ahead. play a little bit of the clip right now, and let me set the stage for this, because if you saw the clip, if you can see it, and it's available on YouTube, for example, it's there, you'll see... Dan's facial expressions as this panic attack is starting to take him over. Uh, Listening on the radio, you'll hear him change a little bit, but not much. But if you saw him, you'd see it. From ABC News, this is Good Morning America. Welcome to the most embarrassing day of my life. We're going to go now to uh, Dan Harris, who's at the news desk, Dan. Good morning, Charlie and Diane. Thank you. This is me 10 years ago. And the reason this is the most embarrassing day of my life is not that it looks like I've been attacked by a blow dryer and a can of hairspray. No, it's that I am about to freak out on national television. Health news now. One of the world's most commonly prescribed medications may be providing a big bonus. Researchers report people who take cholesterol-lowering drugs called statins for at least five years may also lower their risk for cancer. But it's too early to, to prescribe statins slowly for cancer production. At this point, I realize I'm helpless, so I bail right in the middle. Uh, that does it for news. We're going to go back now to Robin and Charlie. Well, you could hear yourself struggling, Dan. Did you think you were having a heart attack or something? No, I knew exactly what was going on, actually. I knew I was having a panic attack. Um, uh, I didn't know why. Uh, we can talk about the why in a moment. But, uh, I, yeah, it was it was very clear to me what was going on. I had had stage fright um, 
you know, my, my entire career, I, I actually made the joke in my first book that my career up until that point refer, uh, represented a triumph of narcissism over fear um, because I liked being on TV more than I feared uh, uh, the the messing up messing up in front of a large audience. Yeah. But uh, I, uh, you know, when it, when it ended, when the when I prematurely ended my newscast. Uh, and tossed it back to the main hosts of the show, uh, uh, Charlie Gibson and Diane Sawyer. Everybody came running over and asked me what happened, and I lied and said I didn't know, but in fact I knew that it was a panic attack. You've had some before this episode? Uh, not a full, not full blown panic attacks, but I'd had moments of getting very, very nervous. But I was always able to kind of pull it back. This time I couldn't. It just got away from me, and you know my heart was racing. My lungs seized up. I couldn't speak anymore. I couldn't breathe. You can hear if you're listening closely that my breathing is labored and heavy. And I just, I couldn't do what one needs to do when one is a broadcaster, as you know very well, which is to speak. And uh, so I had, I was helpless, as I said. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is an ancient uh, panic attacks uh, or the fight or flight um, uh response is something we evolved for you know we have we it was for it was useful in the context of uh being a caveman when you were confronted with a saber-toothed tiger it was it was useful to have your brain flood with adrenaline and the body respond in a very specific way but now panic attacks we get them in situations where it's completely inappropriate like in a meeting with our boss and when we're claustrophobic Mm -hmm. or um when we're in front of a large audience and this was an example of that Dan, I've got a friend who does some part-time ring announcing at boxing events, and he's based out of St. Louis. And he was doing one for Don King that was going to be beamed and streamed. So they told him, you're going to have a few million people watching you. And he goes in the ring, and he loses it. He, and mm-hmm. he and he gets hit with what he said was the worst panic attack of his life. He thought he was going to go down right there. It, it, for people who haven't had one of these... It's got to be an awful feeling, my gosh. It's very common for people to have them and think, as you said before, that they're dying, thinking that they're having a heart attack. Um, it, that, is, that is extremely common. Um, if you've never experienced it before, you will, you know, it, it feels awful, awful, because your, your mind and body are in mutiny. And, and it's this... It's this Vicious cycle, because the more your body freaks out, the more your mind freaks out. And then as a consequence, your body starts freaking out even more, and then your mind starts freaking out even more, and it just cycles and cycles and cycles. Ironically, a week and a half ago, uh, during some of my open lines, we talked about panic attacks, and some of the stories that rolled in were absolutely staggering. We'll do that again next hour with you when we take uh, questions and phone calls. Now, this latest work, of course, called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. Tell me about the title. I uh, So I wrote 10% Happier, in which I told my story of how I had a panic attack and that it, uh, ultimately kind of threw me into the world of self-help and uh, and ultimately landed me on something that I really had always thought was baloney, which is meditation, but that actually there's all this science that suggests it's really good for you. And so I told that whole story and it was kind of a, I describe it as an argument dressed up as a memoir. In other words, the book was a memoir, but really it was an argument. The argument was you should meditate. And the way I made the argument was to tell my personal and often very embarrassing story. 
I not first of all, I didn't think anybody was going to read it. I was I I was thinking, you know, I'm like a B level news guy who's writing a book about a niche subject, and <laughs> but the, to the extent that I I I. I First of all, I got I got kind of lucky because the book came out right as meditation was starting to get cool. Yeah. It was the first time in my life I've ever been ahead of a trend. And uh, so pe- people started to read the book and it became successful. And I naively and somewhat cavalierly assumed that anybody who read the book would start to meditate as if they would like, you know, put the book down and hurl themselves into the lotus position and start meditating. That was that was, as I said, naive. Um, and it, it, was, it really underestimated how hard it is for people to form healthy habits. You know, I talked about evolution before, how we evolved to have a panic attack and sur- or, or to have the fight or flight response in certain situations. Well, the other thing evolution did for us or did not do for us is it didn't bequeath us a, a mind and a brain that is good at adopting healthy habits. You know, we evolution sort of left us a brain that was really good at detecting threats and finding um, sources of food and sexual partners. Why? Because evolution really only cares about getting your DNA into future generations. And so when I wrote the, after I, the book came out, I, I realized that I, I, I was wrong in my assumption that anybody who read it would start meditating. And so I did a couple of things. One is I started a you mentioned in your very very kind introduction that I have a an app company called Ten Percent Happier, and we teach people how to meditate through this app. And it's we have all these amazing teachers. And as being part of this company, I I saw firsthand this rich pageant of human neuroses that get in the way of people who want to meditate. I'm ta- I don't really uh, I'm not aiming to convert people who don't want to meditate, but there are millions of people out there who want to meditate but can't do it for a whole bevy of reasons. And so I I figured, okay, let me write another book in which I systematically t- you know, taxonomize and tackle all the obstacles to meditation. But because I didn't want it to be a dry book, I structured it a, this book as well as a uh, as a story. And it's a great story, and we're going to go through some of those cases. Most doctors, Dan, would probably prescribe Xanax or some other mood-altering anxiety, anti-anxiety pill. You don't seem to favor that. You think meditation's the way to go. I take it. Oh, I, I actually... I'm a maximalist when it comes to mental well-being or, or any kind of well-being. I think you should pull every lever you can as long as as it's healthy. Um, so if your doctor recommends uh, uh, medication and you feel that uh, she or he is making the recommendation uh, wisely, then I have nothing. I have nothing bad to say about medication. I just think that we need to look at the full range. Of options, so when we know what works when it comes to mental well-being, it's uh, eating well, getting enough sleep, having good relationships, having meaningful mm-hmm. work or volunteer work in your life, uh, exercising, my and medication if your uh, doctor recommends it. My what I'm just trying to say is that meditation should also be on the list of no-brainers when it comes to taking care of yourself. And when you say meditation. What are we talking about? Great question. I'm very glad you asked that because the word meditation is a little bit like the word sports. It describes a whole range of activities. You know, um, badminton and water polo have very little to do with one another. So there are tons of kinds of meditation. When I talk about meditation, I'm talking about mindfulness meditation, which is derived from Buddhism, but it is 
thoroughly secular. It's been stripped of any religious lingo or metaphysical claims. And mindfulness meditation, the reason why I was drawn to it is because it's the kind of meditation that has been studied most extensively in the labs and has been shown. Now, the research is really in its early stages, but the research suggests that mindfulness meditation can lower your blood pressure, boost your immune system, and literally rewire key parts of your brain that have to do with stress, focus, self-awareness, compassion. And so that that is really what intrigued me as a skeptic. And uh, so, so what is it? I can, I can give it to you very quickly. Um, beginning mindfulness meditation is extremely simple. Really only three steps. The first is to sit comfortably with your back straight so that you don't fall asleep, although mm-hmm. worse things could happen. Many people close their eyes. If you don't like to close your eyes, you can kind of just gaze in a neutral way uh, at, some, on the, on the, at something on the ground. And then uh, the second step is to bring your full attention to the feeling of your breath coming in and going out. You know, pick a spot, your nose, your chest, or your belly. You're not thinking about your breath. You're just feeling the raw data of the physical sensations of the breath coming in and going out. And the third step is the, big, the most important thing because as soon as you try to do this seemingly easy thing, your mind will go nuts. Uh, you, you'll start thinking about what's for lunch. Why did I say that stupid thing to my boss? Where did gerbils run wild? You know, why did <laughs> Dances with Wolves beat Goodfellas for Best Picture in 1991? Blah, blah, blah. And the whole game is just to notice when you've become distracted and to start again and again and again. And, and that's a bicep curl for your brain. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.